9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf. I am your host, and I am coming to you from very, very hot and sunny New York City. Joining us from Washington, D.C., we've got uh, Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. And we've got Ed Luce of the Financial Times. Hi, Ed. Hello. And we've got uh, Christine Warmoth of the uh, the director of the Rand International Security and Defense Policy Center, who's back joining us. Hi, Christine. Hi, David. I'm actually in sunny Colorado Springs today. Nice. Very, very nice. And of course, farthest away because she's just <laughs> like that, um, is, is Corey Jockey, um, who I think is in London, England, uh, at her post at IISS. Are you, Corey? No, I am not. I am actually cooling my heels in Vail, Colorado. Uh, for the Clements Center for History and Strategies, fabulous summer teaching program for PhD students. Wow. So two of you are in Colorado, and and, and you get credit for that, because apparently it's going to be a, a brutal heat wave on the east coast of the United States. Um, we won't notice, though, because we are going to be our heads in the cloud. We are going to be still in the midst of celebrating having done 200 episodes of Deep State Radio. We actually had the Yay! Two- Yay, amazing, amazing. <laughs> we, we actually had the 200th uh, episode uh, last Thursday, but we thought we would celebrate it a little bit this week. We're also celebrating in some other ways. There's some discounts on membership. We've got a, a reader survey, which I, by the way, uh, a listener survey, we've, 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 we've posted out there. And, and I have to say, we've gotten lots and lots of responses. And we'd like lots more because we really want to be as responsive as possible in shaping future episodes of Deep State Radio. But we thought we would look back this week at what has transpired over the course of those 200 episodes, not in terms of the episodes, but in terms of the world. And we'd spend this first episode of the week looking a bit at what's happened in the United States since uh, we did the first of these, and then a little later in the week, uh, the second episode, we'll look at what has happened around the world. Because a lot has happened, um, and, uh, you, you know, it, and just to give you a sense, guys, now help prime the pumps, uh, we started all this in June of 2017. And to give you an idea of where the world was in June of 2017, in the weeks immediately prior to our starting this, uh, James Comey confirmed that there was an investigation into Trump-Russia that was possible, and he was then fired. Uh, Mueller was then appointed special counsel. Manafort and Gates pleaded not guilty to 12 counts, including conspiracy against Trump. 
Um, so did George Papadopoulos pleaded guilty. Michael Flynn pleaded guilty. And there was a shooting in Alexandria of a um, number of members of Congress. This was like literally in the three or four weeks immediately before our starting this. Um, and more so, important, David, let's not forget that that was in my dog park. Yes, the shooting took place in Rose's dog park, as she pointed out at the time. Um, uh, my my and, dog was pretty upset about the whole thing. Yeah. Well, fortunately, you know, they've uh, uh, the members of Congress have at least uh, recovered since then. And uh, one of them, at least, Steve Scalise, has really returned to being a very difficult person. Um, but uh, let's not dwell on that. I would just like each one of you to give us a perspective on, you know, these past couple of years and what you think history may take away from them. Uh, since every single day we are so barraged with headlines um, that it's very hard to have any perspective at all. Uh, so let me start out there in Colorado. Um, and let me start with Corey, and then we'll go to Christine. But Corey, where, what do you think, as we look back on the past couple of years, is going to be remembered? I think the thing that will most be remembered is the extent to which my fellow Republicans averted their eyes from the president's racism, from the president's corrosion of norms, from the president's demonization of the media, from the president inciting violence against the media, against members of Congress. Uh, uh, I, I don't think it is too much to say that 20 years from now, all of us are going to be being asked, in the moment of America's great national crisis, why didn't Republicans do anything to stop the president? Because we had the ability to, and something like 98% of people who identify as Republicans endorse the president's behavior. Christine, when you look back at the past couple of years, um, from your perspective, what do you think people are going to end up taking away from it? Well, related a bit to what Corey said, I'm struck by just how how many norms in Washington in terms of how you run a government have been completely shed. And it's it's not clear to me that all, you know, even if a Democrat is elected uh, in 2020, it's not clear to me how many of those norms will be restored? You know, even relatively small things like the fact that we no longer have a White House daily briefing or any kind of a regular Pentagon briefing. You know, will will the next president, if it's not Donald Trump, put those things back in place? Will we go back to a system where we have a normal National Security Council process? Will we go back to a, a point in time where we have serious vetting for cabinet level officials and we expect cabinet level officials to be Senate confirmed, you know, the, all there have been just so many of those things that have been completely cast aside in the last two years. No, those are those are good points. And you both have me worried. Ed, when you look back on the past two years, I suspect what you remember uh, as as the highlights on, on the U.S. side are a that you got married, and B, that you started vaping. Would you say those are the, the big highlights? <laughs> You're quite right. June 2017 was when I got married. So um, I was about to apologize for going immediately to the personal, but you preempted me. That was uh, clever of you to remember. 
Um, I think that all the things we feared about Trump in uh, mid-2017, we already feared about him in mid-2016, with the difference being that, you know, we probably didn't expect he would actually win. Um, so six months into his presidency, when, when uh, Deep State launched, um, I, I, I don't think that um, the, way, the way it was panning out was a terrible shock, even though each event is a shock and each Trump sort of transgression is, um, is horrifying. Um, we're, we're still in that pattern two years later. Um, the difference between then and now, I think, is that if you'd asked most of us then, will um, Trump stand a chance of being reelected in 2020? I think most of us would have said no. And now we'll, we'd probably say 50-50. I mean, I, I think, David, you're a bit more optimistic um, on that. And you think, perhaps rightly, I hope rightly, that Trump will lose next year. I'm less confident of that. And that would be... That would be my biggest surprise two years on, that actually he has a fighting chance of being a two-term president. Okay, guys, you're really, you're not helping my mood here. Um, and I'm, and unfortunately, I now have to turn to Rosa, who seldom, um, um, you know. Yeah, Rosa's going to save us with the upbeat take. Wait, so am I supposed to say Am I supposed to say something that has surprised me or something that we know whether or not it surprised us? No, no, it doesn't have to be a surprise. I, I do think it's worth remembering that in the very first episodes of Deep State Radio back then, um, you claimed the title of the um, holder of the thorny crown of entropy, just as Corey claimed the title of the holder of the tiara of optimism. And so you, you've always carved out this space. and Special and also, niche. In those very first episodes, you started talking about the need to find deeply buried silo space um, to uh, uh, hide uh, from the potential apocalypse to come. So, <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so you're saying make your day. Um, I, so I guess here's here's something that is not a surprise, and here's something that is a little bit of a surprise. Um, the not surprise, um, the depressing but not surprising piece is this. I think we have been powerfully reminded of the fact that America is not exempt from any of the terrible, tragic forces of history or from any of the terrible, tragic tendencies of human beings to acquiesce in, tolerate and acquiesce in, and sometimes actively aid and abet evil, if, if you will. Um, you know, that a lot of my career has been spent studying and working in places where terrible atrocities have been committed, um, you know, civil wars and, and uh, situations where you've seen mass torture, things like that, mass atrocities like Sierra Leone, Northern Uganda, the Lord's Resistance Army, the Balkans, and in studying things like the Holocaust and the Rwandan genocide. And, and it is always so tempting to think, well, but they're different from us. That kind of thing could never happen here. And no, we are not yet at the mass genocide stage, but I think we've had a really powerful object lesson in the last two years. Um, and this goes to, you know, Christine's point and, Cor and Corey's points. Uh, 
which is that you can see that that slide, you know, that norm after norm is violated, all sorts of things that everyone said that couldn't happen, impossible, no, 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 it'll never happen, it wouldn't be tolerated, happens and it is tolerated and it becomes business as usual. Uh, and each time, you know, we normalize more awful stuff a little tiny bit more. And, and that's painful. I don't think it's, you know, it's not surprising because if history tells us anything, it's that no society can claim to be immune from those forces, but it sure is depressing. Um, the, the slightly surprising thing, notwithstanding what I just said, um, slightly surprising only because despite everything I know, uh, I still didn't want to believe this, um, is that we still have a solid 40-some percent of Americans who think that Donald Trump is doing a good job as president. And I would have thought you know, again, um, given, I shouldn't be surprised given everything I just said, but I, but I still, some little part of me, despite the thorny crown of entropy, still thought, no, this will shock them. No, this will shock them. No, his meeting with Putin will shock them. No, his comments, you know, about children it will shock them. No, you know, the latest this week, it just it's every few days you get a new one. His racist comments, his appalling comments about uh, members of Congress uh, who should go back where they came from. Uh, this will shock them and it will shake off his supporters. And yet nothing shakes off his core supporters. Um, and I still find that on some deep level, I do find that shocking. Um, Can I add one thing, which is Rosa called earlier than anyone else I know uh, that all of us saying this has got to be the limit. This is January of 2016, Rosa said, it is impossible to shame this president and and he's just going to keep doing what he's doing for as long as people let him. Rosa was the first person to understand that. Well, so Rosa understands the mind of Donald Trump. Don't feel good about that. Well, See, this is the, the depressing thing is if you spend enough time studying atrocities, then you're you're better prepared for Donald Trump. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, I was I was at a dinner party, a, a small dinner party on Saturday night, and the host was a psychiatrist and a very, very well-known, respected psychiatrist. And he said, you know, all the psychiatrists around him um, uh, uh, think Trump's, you know, mentally ill. And that and, and again, that's a, one of those things that would have been shocking years ago, but it, it's sort of Par for the course at the moment. And he said, but the important thing to remember, which most people forget, is if you have a serious personality disorder, you're crazy all the time. It's it's not like it sort of tunes in and out. You're always viewing the world in in a in a distorted way. And in Trump's case, the way he always views the world is as an extension of himself. Nothing exists outside himself and his own needs. And and that never changes day in and day out and that leads in part to this to this litany um christine over the course of the past two years one of the things that we've seen of course is what corey is talking about with which is to say um the gop has um uh, remained pretty inert and trump's base has remained much as it was i think he was at 43% approval rating on election day, and he's at 42% approval rating right now. 
despite all of this, despite in the past two weeks demonstrating that he was a racist and uh, ha- and and being accused of rape uh, and having a buddy of his uh, being accused of being a serial sex predator and so on and so on and so forth. But but what is what has surprised you about the response of the Democratic Party to all of this? Well, um, on the positive side, I would say I've been pleasantly surprised at just what I would say the enormous amounts of energy in the in the Democratic Party and in people who you know are supportive of the things that the Democratic Party has been traditionally associated with. So, you know, separate from the official parts of the Democratic Party, I think it's been wonderful to see all of these groups, all of these podcasts, you know, all of these nonprofits develop to to try to advocate for restoring democracy and fighting for the people who are basically, you know, being cast as the other by this administration. So I think, you know, if there's one thing that makes me hopeful uh, looking forward in the next two years, it is the level of energy and enthusiasm. And I think, frankly, the fact that lots of people, particularly younger people who weren't particularly interested in or following politics are now doing it and doing it, you know, with zeal. Uh, At the same time, the, you know, the candidates, you know, I, I see the Democratic Party still spending a lot of time and energy fighting amongst itself about policy details, whether it's health care, whether it's border security, whether it's education, instead of remembering that the first priority is Donald Trump is the president. Uh, and, and I do, when I look at the number of candidates running and the amount of time we're spending debating the finer points of these things, when, when frankly, you know, almost any of the candidates would be dramatically better, in my personal opinion, than the current president. Um, Cora, you just made a very brief comment there. I'd like to come back to you um, before, before going to Ed. Uh, you're a student of many of the institutions of the U.S. government, and you know they've gone through a, a period unlike any other in their history. More cabinet secretaries and senior officials have resigned in disgrace or in conflict than at any other time in American history. Um, and uh, you know uh, some of these institutions uh, have been put in a position where. Uh, they were asked to stand up to wrongdoing and, and support norms, and they did it, and some did not. And I, I'm wondering, how do you think the institutions of the U.S. government have weathered the last two years? They have weathered them, I think, successfully. Um, you know, I'm actually really impressed at the extent to which, in particular, the FBI and the Justice Department have continued to execute their responsibilities, despite barrages of attempts by the White House to politicize them. Uh, and, and, you know, it, which is not to say they haven't made any mistakes. It's not to say they haven't exercised bad judgment in some instances, but but perfection is never 
the point, much as we may aspire to it, uh, they have held up their constitutional end of the deal remarkably well, given the pressure on them. I think uh, during Secretary Mattis's time in the Defense Department, the defense establishment did quite a good job of preventing the after after a stumbling first start when Secretary Mattis permitted the president to sign the travel ban at the Pentagon, thereby associating the American military with one of the sharpest edge, most politically divisive policies of the of the Trump era. Um, but but the Pentagon has their game after that, and I think have done a really good job on both the military and civilian side of the House to try and keep themselves out of the politics of this. Uh, but it gets harder and harder as border issues, as the president continues to try and make the military the centerpiece of border control. And I think subsequent acting secretaries have been um, less diligent than Secretary Mattis was in, in, for example, permitting uh, money that was authorized for other purposes to be reprogrammed to the border. I think that will cast a long shadow. But there, the Congress has stepped forward to do uh, its institutional job of saying the president doesn't have the authority to do that. The CIA... I think this is the unsung hero of the Trump administration, because as the director for national intelligence, he has uh, continued to consistently uh, support the judgments the intelligence community has come to and not allow the president to bend and distort those. Um, and for the much heralded North Korean style um, cabinet meeting where Secretary Mattis got so much appreciation for not acting like Secretary Pompeo, or I guess he was then the director of central intelligence, or the vice president or anybody else. The first person in that cabinet meeting to refuse to let the president make it personal was actually Dan Coates. He said what a privilege it is to work for the people of the intelligence community who put their lives on the line every single day for this country. So I think keeping the intelligence community out of this brawl has actually been enormously important for the country. And not coincidentally, there are now reports that the president is looking at replacing Dan Coates. Not coincidentally, no. Uh, in fact, I was about to say, I think Corey has, has, has just written his fate um, by praising him for this, um, because I think uh, he, 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 there's a lot of talk about him being the next to go, although there is some talk about Wilbur Ross being the next to go, which would not produce, I think, any crocodile tears on the part of anybody who's paying any attention. Um, I think Ed has stepped off. Has, are, are you still there, Ed? Uh, yes, I think it's a, it's just about um, three o'clock. Ed got depressed and he he gave up and is going off to ponder ponder the universe and the general existential meaninglessness of life. Wow, yeah, I, I'm surprised it's taken us a half an hour to get to the existential meaninglessness of life. Know, usually we get there so quickly. Yeah, usually it's where we it's where we start off. Um, uh, Rosa, 
Corey just get pretty good defense of various institutions of the U.S. government. And as we sort of go for the next round, one of the things that's that I wanted to ask about is what is the development that's most surprising to you? And I have to say, it's hard to pick because there's so much that's shocking to me. But one of them is the degree to which, particularly in the past five months, we've had an attorney general who has felt empowered to essentially systematically undermine the rule of law in the U.S. and um, uh, do, do, you know, obstruct justice as, a, as a, almost a policy priority. Uh, and, you know, I don't know that we even know the extent to which that has happened, the extent to which he may have pressured Mueller to end early, the extent to which he may be behind the pressure that led the Justice Department to choose not to pursue charges against the Trump organization uh, approximately beginning five months ago, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I'm just wondering if is that is 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 that one of the big shockers for you? And if not, what 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 is a big shocker for you? Uh, I I don't think I could isolate out any single biggest shocker precisely because part of the part of the sort of dark magic of the Trump administration is that every time you think you've seen the most shocking thing, it then is eclipsed by the next terrible, terrible, shocking thing, which would have been the most shocking thing, which which makes it and people do get numb. I, I think I think we are we are in the middle, you know, as Corey said, right, history, history is going to judge us all. Um, and and the question is going to be, oh, no. it's not going to judge the obscure ones of us. Those of us who we, we can, yes, it will. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. Um, uh, just as we judge the ordinary Germans, history will judge the obscure as well as the the high exactly and the mighty. Right, Rosa. Exactly um, right. You know, and I and I think I think that the surprise, as I said, or or the not surprise, is is how paralyzed we get. I guess I'm a little less sanguine than, than Corey is about how our institutions are holding up. Um, because if we have, we say our institutions are, are holding up and yet here we are with, with norm shattering moment after norm shattering moment, what does it mean for them to be holding up? You know, just to say that we can identify plenty of individuals and we can who have acted with integrity it doesn't help us that much when the horrors continue, right? Um, what it, what what good does it do us to say to be able to say, well, you know, Jim Mattis did a pretty good job, and you know, overall, the FBI is doing a pretty good job. You know, and th this, I, I don't know the answer to this, but by any means, I I, I don't know what the if if there is a magic bullet. Um, but I guess to me, what is surprising is 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 not any one thing or that I, I shouldn't even say this is surprising is not surprising. It's, it's appalling, it's depressing, but it's not actually all that surprising. Um, but the, the, the fact that the nature of repeated egregious acts is that it numbs us to repeated egregious acts. Um, the nature of outrage is that it numbs us to the effect of outrage. We're stuck right in the middle of that. Uh, it's 
it's good, it's better for individuals to have clean hands than to have dirty hands. But if having clean hands on an individual level doesn't doesn't stop the appalling stuff, um, well, we haven't achieved a whole lot either. So I, I, I find this a very frightening moment. I mean, I, I really do do think that this is a moment when people should be pondering, you know, slides into totalitarianism, slides into atrocities, and asking themselves how far along we are in, in, our, in our own national slide towards horror and what can be done to reverse it. Christ. Um, Sorry, David. No, it's it's all right. You know, I, I I periodically I'll do these kind of threads on on Twitter, um, which some people have taken to calling reverse Dianu threads, which is to say, there's a Passover song that uh, in which there, there's a long list of the things that that God did to help the Jews and. And, it, you know, after each one, he said, if he'd only done this one, it would have been enough. And the, and the reverse Dainu is, if it was only the racism, it would have been enough. You know, if it was only the rape, it would have been enough. If it was only obstruction of justice, it would have been enough. If it was only treasonous behavior, it would have been enough. If it was only um, corruption, it would have been enough. If it was only attacking the FBI and the CIA, it would have been enough. If it was only Puerto Rico, it would have been enough. If it was only... Um, the children in cages, it would have been enough, and on and on and on. And the reason I do it is because I do think we become numb, Corey. You know, I think what happens is, you know, we go into what we've referred to periodically here as the fog of Trump, which is, you know, it's almost as though it's his strategy. You know, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, a woman accused him of rape. And, you know, the, the way he pushes it aside is another outrage. And it works. It's almost impossible to yes. remember your last outrage. Um, and so, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, David. Yes, you did, and it's okay. Go ahead. <laughs> now, I was going to say Ben Wittes is also um, a contender in the category of all the things that should have been enough for us to realize the nature of President Trump. And I agree that everything we needed to know, we knew by election day uh, in 2016. That challenge is losing hope. It's not letting ourselves get so worn down from the constant assaults on virtue, on norms, on individuals, that, that we just get weary of it. And I feel it myself a whole bunch, like, uh, once again, having to point out that the president's a racist and this is bad for the country. Uh, it, it feels like we should, we should be able to be done with this by now, but it's not an effective strategy to let ourselves give into that. We have to keep doing what the writer William Faulkner said, which is we must, there are some things we must never agree are okay. President Trump is a genuine threat to constitutional governance in the United States. And uh, if you believe that, then Republicans and Democrats alike have a patriotic responsibility to ignore whatever lunatic fringe policies Democrat, a Democratic <laughs> candidate may propose and acknowledge there is a difference between policies we don't support, which are a routine part 
of our governance in America and a threat to that democratic governance, which is what President Trump poses. And therefore, we need to vote for whoever it is that the Democratic Party nominates for president if President Trump is the Republican nominee. That, thank you. And, that was, and it leads to a question, Steen. Um, short, you know, about six, seven months, um, actually maybe eight, nine months before this was launched and I was still working um, uh, as the editor and CEO at Foreign Policy. And in fact, we were doing the Foreign Policy podcast. Um, but I wrote an op-ed, a column for Foreign Policy, which was the first one in the 50-year history of the publication, where we took a position on the election. And essentially, we said what I'd been saying through the election, which was Donald Trump poses a threat to U.S. national security. And in fact, by the time the election was nearly upon us, I said he poses the greatest threat that we face to U.S. national security. Um, you're former Undersecretary of Defense. You've been studying issues like this. Uh, is that hyperbole? Do you actually think that Donald Trump, as many people have suggested since, actually poses the greatest threat to U.S. national security? In the sense, David, that Donald Trump has the power to, you know, engage the U.S. military in a conflict at a time and place of his choosing, you know, and perhaps under very, very ill-advised circumstances, uh, you know. So he's certainly not the greatest threat when compared to, you know, North Korean nuclear weapons or, you know, when compared to, uh, you know, Russian aggression in what it sees as its former sphere of influence. He's not a threat in that way, but in the sense that he doesn't seem to have any kind of a process in place that allows him to deliberate the risks and benefits of particular courses of action that he doesn't listen particularly to his advisors who those of whom many of whom have you know some quite a bit of experience in, in that way I think he is a serious threat. Uh, and um, from everything I've heard about people who are in the community right now, you know, inside the government, what I, what I hear reinforces my concern in that area. Um, Rosa, same question to you, and it's the last question. We're almost done with, with this uh, episode. But what's your sense? You've, you've talked about the threat posed to the constitutional form of government. But what about stability? What about peace? What about, um, uh, the, you know, uh, the, the, the kinds of threats to our security that typically we worry about? In the international domain, or do you mean threats to the peace domestically? I, I, mean, <laughs> I mean domestically, but, but, but part of this is, you know, and one of the things that I find just mind-boggling is that not only did the president of the United States, you know, collaborate with an enemy government in order to get elected, then try to cover that up, then obstruct justice, then defend that enemy government time and time again, but then we had an investigation in which the investigation confirmed all of that, despite the its way it's been spun. And, and we're not even talking about that right now because we're on to other things. And because the 
Trump has been successful in spinning the no collusion, no obstruction argument. But it seems to me that if your leader is picked by one of your leading enemies, that's a security risk. But then again, maybe I'm just gloomy. Well, so yes, I, I, I think we live in a scary world. I think there are all sorts of actors out there that, that are not waking up every morning thinking, how can I ensure the safety, prosperity, and stability of the United States of America? Um, that being said, I think that I'm, I'm not that worried about some sort of um, external threat in the form of a military uh, attack on the U.S. at, at this point or, or some kind of global conflagration in, in the near term, partly because in this one area, I think I think Trump's instincts are probably working in our favor. I think I think Trump is terrified of the idea of, of the U.S. getting into a military conflict um, and has, in fact, done his best within the limits of his of his capacity and sanity and so forth um, to pull back whenever it looks like we're getting too close. Now, granted, the only reason we've gotten as close as we have has been because of his own irresponsible actions and rhetoric. But nevertheless, I think his strong instinct is to is to try to keep us out of conflict. And given everything at this exact moment, that is probably a, more of a good thing than a bad thing, um, much more of a good thing than a bad thing. Um, to me, the the biggest national security threat in the in the really near term with Donald Trump is is not a war with North Korea or a war with Iran or or who knows what. Although you know, I also don't think we can completely discount those. For, notwithstanding what I just said, I think the you know the inadvertent escalation remains a frightening possibility. But but to me, the the scariest thing is. Um, uh, hold on, I apologize. I've got other phones ringing, but I'll quiet them down. To me, the scariest thing is the sort of internal rot aided and abetted by adversarial external actors such as the Russians. Um, obviously, the efforts by adversaries to influence the U.S. elections are not going to end. Um, efforts by... Um, Efforts by external actors to sort of sow internal discord and instability are not going to end. And I, I'm more fearful of chaos, in, internal rot chaos and instability brought about through a combination of our own messed upness and external efforts to accelerate it. That, that's, what, that's sort of what keeps me up at night in the near term in some ways much more than a kind of external conflagration. You know, I would just chip in that while I worry about the internal rot as well, Rosa, Mike Morell, you know, former acting director of CIA and Sandy Winnefeld, four-star admiral, former vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs, wrote a very compelling piece sort of, you know, painting the picture of what might happen if we stumbled into a war with Iran, you know, driven by the decision to withdraw from the nuclear deal and to, you know, take out the waiver spoil sanctions. And it, notwithstanding Trump's desire to try to avoid a conflict, which I think you're right, he had, it, it, there's so much inconsistency. Sandy and Mike did a very good job painting a picture of what that would be like. And it would be very high oil prices. China would be the benefactor. The Europeans would be driven further away from us. 
the military piece itself might be very short and we would prevail, but the ripple effects are, you know, redound very badly for this country. No, I think that's 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 absolutely right. I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to find small mercies. <laughs> I hear you. <ya. laughs> and and we absolutely cannot. These are the sort of lower probability but exceptionally high consequence kinds of events. Um, um, and we we absolutely can't stop worrying about that. I I, I think in in probability terms, the likelihood that we will sort of do ourselves in is greater than the likelihood of an international conflict doing us in. But 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 I also think that, uh, yes, I completely agree. The the those possibilities remain real and quite frightening. Yeah. Now, having said that, in probability terms, the likelihood that you would have suggested in, I don't know, the late 90s or even 2010, that we'd elect a reality television show host as the president of the United States, who had no experience in government and who was patently corrupt and odious in every aspect, uh, you might have thought was fairly low also. So I think we, we have to consider um, the, the, that those low likelihood events do happen, which was kind of where you started. Uh, we've run out of time here on this episode. Uh, on the next episode of Deep State Radio, we're going to talk about what's happened in the past 200 episodes, the past two years, um, in terms of uh, the rest of the world. And I encourage you to join us because not everything happens uh, uh, with regard to the United States. And we're nowhere nearly as narcissistic as the president of the United States, uh, no matter how narcissistic we are. Having said that, you know, if you want uh, more from us on these issues or our other pods, go to the DSRnetwork.com. And I think a great way of marking the 200th anniversary of Deep State Radio would be for you to, uh, I don't know, go there, you know, fill out that questionnaire we have. Um, uh, uh, we also have a discount uh, on, on membership now uh, that's uh, a result of achieving this milestone. So this is the best time to go and sign up and become a member and support this kind of discussion. Clearly, given the news, given everything we've talked about, uh, it's something that's needed. Unfortunately, we're every week, every episode, uh, able to bring in the very, very best, smartest people that I know. Uh, and that, of course, includes Rosa and Corey and Christine and Ed, who left us a little bit early, um, uh, to whom I extend thanks for this episode. Uh, thanks to all of you who've tuned in. Join us again next week on, or next episode on Deep State Radio. Bye-bye. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.